Hello and welcome to the Adaptive Edge of Education. My name is Miranda Shorty and today with me I have a guest. Her name is Stacy Barlow and she's an absolute genius who I've had the privilege of working with for several years and was probably one of the most influential people in um, giving me the old tap on the shoulder to say, hi, education might be for you. So um, I'm super excited to have her here today. She's a restorative practices coordinator for Maine's School Safety Center. She's also a doctoral candidate at Plymouth State. Um, she's researching restorative practices. She is a mother of three. And she's a former director of an alternative education program in Rochester, New Hampshire. So she's a ton of experience in education from a bunch of different perspectives. And Stacey, if you want to tell us a little bit about what your topic is that you're going to talk about today is an adaptive challenge in education and your experience with it. Absolutely. Um, so I entered my role as the restorative practices coordinator in Maine, um, the department I work for is a division of the Department of Education. Um, it was a brand new position. No one had ever held this role before. But the main um, Department of Education noticed a real uptake in exclusionary discipline in schools, um, crossover between school-related behavior and the criminal justice system for juveniles, um, in particular following the COVID break that um, sort of gave everyone a reset in education in Maine or worldwide, actually. But um, the, the intention was to have a way of working with schools, creating programming that will allow administrators and um, potentially SROs or law enforcement that work with schools to have an alternative to suspending, expelling students and diversion from the juvenile justice system. So initially my role was to find out what is actually happening in Maine. And through that research, we determined that what is really needed is an intentional program designed to help schools develop their own organic restorative practice program, not bringing in external providers, but helping schools to provide those services themselves. So currently at the moment, we are about to pilot our statewide restorative practices training, which will be an intensive program for um, work. We have an implementation team of coaches that will spend about over a school year, about 100 hours working with the whole school staff as training everyone from teachers, administrators, guidance counselors to bus drivers and custodians and cafeteria workers. Everyone will be trained in how to respond restoratively to students, um, manage small conflicts in the classroom restoratively, use consistent language across um, between classrooms, between what happens in the hall, what happens on the bus, and then ultimately maintain connection with those schools weekly with our coaches for a, a, the, the subsequent academic year so that it's not a, um, you know, we come and we do a workshop and then disappear, but that there's systemic support for the training, um, helping schools address conflicts amongst staff with implementation and also helping them to develop their own programming as we go forward. That, um, but on the system level, it is a complicated transition. There's a mindset change and really a paradigm shift in how we respond to behavior, how we interpret behavior. And there's been a lot of surprisingly large amounts of pushback from school staff 
about sure. their role in this and how they should respond to it. I remember, uh, so I worked for Stacy um, in my former district where she was the director of the education or the alternative education program. And I remember the first time I was introduced to the concept of restorative justice in education, it was introduced to me under the guise that it was like a dirty word. Like, don't, don't say it. Don't say restorative justice because people get upset and you'll just start a conflict. And so don't say the words, but, but that's what, what we're going to do. And, um, and I was like, why, why are people so bent out of shape at this idea that we would try to rehabilitate or restore um, and, and help people who are struggling behaviorally, help them grow and, uh, you know, and improve. And I had no idea how intensely that one term could create conflict. Yeah, it's, it's really true. There's, um, you know, in the culture we live in right now, it's, uh, it's very politically charged the, the, um, just the words restorative justice gets a lot of people's hackles up. Um, primarily what it is is they don't understand the intentionality of it, but mm -hmm. it has somehow fallen under the umbrella of woke politics or um, that a lot of people see restorative justice. I think it's important to define that my role is with minors, with youth, not with adults. That's a completely different topic, although sure. it's still a, a very worthy um pursuit, but my, my research and my work is with um, 18 year olds and under. Um, but people see it as a get out of jail free card, even in the school environment. Um, to give an example, um, during the last, last year, and when I was still working as an administrator in the school, we were, my program was very, very strongly restorative. And I had a student who thought it was, I don't know if y'all are familiar with the Devious Licks experience of 2021. <laughs> Devious um, Licks of 2021. Yeah, good times. Um, <laughs> but there was a challenge on TikTok, basically, from some anonymous person who I'd love to know who they are. Mm. But um, to break something or steal something at your school and then wisely record yourself doing it. Yes. Um, so a student and of ours. Had, um, and then wonder why you get in trouble. But, you know, um, that's a whole adolescent brain development conversation for another day. But um, we, I had a student who was challenged by his friends to rip the bathroom stall door off and, um, and try to put it out the window. He got uh -huh. caught, was sent home from school. Um, and I was able to convince administration to do, to allow us to do a restorative process rather than suspending him. Um, so we were able to do it the next day. He went home for the afternoon, came back, with his mom and with the custodian and um, we're participating in the circle. A couple, I always allowed students to bring another friend to the process as support. Another student asked to be part of it. And um, using the restorative process, the intention is for the student to take meaningful accountability for what they did, but then decide with the victim, whether it's an individual, it might be property that was damaged or a community or a classroom, what the victim has a say in what how this gets repaired, how we make things better, bring ourselves back to equilibrium. And the student gave the cursory 14-year-old, I know, I know, I made a mistake. But then the um, the custodian was there who was a buddy of the student. And he said, and the student thought he was there to help him, but the custodian said, no, I'm actually here because I 
am someone who was harmed by what you did. I had to stay last night till seven o'clock because we had to get some, we had to weld the door back on because you pulled the metal off and I had to go to the um, hardware store or whatever, get all the pieces. I didn't get to leave till seven and I missed my son who was a fourth graders band concert. And so not only did this hurt me, it hurt my son. And then I went home and my wife and I got in a fight because she accused me of caring more about my job than I do about my child, which was interesting for the student to see this response. And then when it was his mother's turn to speak, he said, I know, I'm sorry, mom. She said, no, you don't understand. When I went to work this morning, I got written up because this is the third time I've had to leave work because of something you've done. And so your behavior might cost me my job. And she's a single mom. And more so, I was 29 minutes late picking your brother up from daycare, which was $29 for those of you who've had the daycare experience. But also he thought I had forgotten about him. So he was almost inconsolable when I arrived. So this, all these, um, so the student was able to understand the impact of his decision. Ultimately, the, um, the agreement was that he would spend two weeks after school working with a custodian painting the bathroom stalls because they had also been had a little bit of the devious licks experience. Um, and he would also pick his brother up from daycare two days a week to make sure that his brother knew that everyone cared about him and that no one was going to be late. Um, and, and when teachers tell me that this is not enough of a consequence or, you know, we'll go through the process and then they would say, but now you're going to suspend him. Right. My argument would always be, which do you think is more likely to teach this student how to be a good person, how to be a good citizen, understand yeah. the impact of his, his behavior? Is it being accountable, repairing the damage, or is it going home to play Xbox for 10 days, which is right. really the get out of jail card, get out right. of jail free card. And, and that, just that, that um, example is a really, uh, is a solid way of saying we have to change the paradigm of what consequences or punishment look like. Is our intention for the student to grow and to become a better person and to reduce recidivism or the likelihood that they'll do something like this again? Or right. is it just to get them out of our hair and out of our space, knowing make- that now they're, t- they're two weeks behind in all their classes, the likelihood of them acting out is significantly higher because now they're also feeling anxiety and stress about their academics as well. Well, and also we're creating this adversarial relationship, right? Like it's very hierarchical. Like we have the power and the control here. And so we get to decide what happens to you when you do something wrong and we punish you when you're wrong. And that feels immediately like the student has to take a defensive role or it's an adversarial position rather than, here we are, uh, this has occurred, this is not appropriate behavior, this has caused a detriment to people within your community and your family, and you need to see what that truly looks like and figure out how you restore your relationship with those people so that the next time an opportunity like that comes up or there's some sort of influence or you know outside catalyst suggesting you do something like this, you think not just about what that would look like for you personally, but what does that look like for all the people that I impact? And um, I think that is really hard for some people to wrap their heads around because in terms of our, our own society and our own culture, we are so deeply entrenched in this idea of retributive justice and that when you do something wrong, you have to pay your time, you have to do your time and you have to you know, do your punishment and um, atone for that somewhere. And then 
really you're still not in even if you do do that you meet the demands of the punishment that we've assigned to you you're still not fully restored right like you're not coming back into society with every opportunity you left with so it's it's still feels adversarial and i was looking at some it's something that really challenges me to understand the resistance to this um, movement or integration into education, these types of restorative practices. I was reading some articles about restorative justice programs um, in Scotland, New Zealand, other parts of Europe, and some research and data that's been coming out of those areas about how less likely um, recidivism occurs. And, um, and they seem to be more, I don't know, you've done way more research on this. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be like there's way more interest or respect for this as an option. But for some reason in the US, there's a tremendous amount of resistance. And I saw this come to fruition recently. We had a an incident occur in my town um, with a student, a former student from my school that was really traumatic for the whole community, not just um, you know, the school or his friends or his family or whatever, but the entire community kind of reeled from this experience. And the comments that I saw on the blessed social media um, were all about how we have to throw the book at this kid. We have to make an example of this kid. We need to all show up at the courthouse on his trial date and demand um, he be held accountable very much in a retributive kind of way. And I thought that's really interesting because we have an incredibly low turnout when it comes to local elections, when it comes to school board meetings, when it comes to select persons meetings, there's very little interest from the community. But now when someone does something wrong and we're ready to tar and feather them for their behavior, we show up, we want to show up. I right. Think You're going to have a scene like in, you know, Beauty and the Beast where everyone has the pitchforks and, um, flaming torches and they're going to get the bad guy. But I think it's interesting what you just said that held accountable. When you look at our traditional criminal or even school discipline response, there really isn't a lot of accountability. What we're looking at as accountability is removing them from society or removing them from school for a certain amount of time. And then generally they come back. Nothing has been resolved. The victim is, has not had any opportunity to really share what this experience did to them. Um, even if you think about a traditional court trial, um, sometimes a victim will testify. Very frequently they don't because it is traumatic. It's often discouraged, especially in the case of violent crime. Um, and then maybe at the end you might, uh, some judges will, depending on the, the crime, allow a victim impact statement, but not always. And then the person goes away from society. There's no meaningful process for reintegrating them into their community, into their family, um, finding meaningful work that will allow them to reintegrate successfully. And then we all go on like it never happened. We're in a restorative process. And it certainly doesn't always mean in the criminal sense that the person won't go, won't be incarcerated. They very well may, depending on what happened. But the victim, the person who was harmed or the community that was harmed, has an opportunity to share what happened to them and to start the healing process. Um, a criminal justice system, if you look at it 
from a um, perspective of how the questions that are answered. Traditionally, in a criminal justice system, we ask first, what laws have been broken? We're looking at the laws. Yeah. Who did it and what do they deserve? And that's where it ends. But from a restorative lens, we're looking at who has been hurt, who was harmed by what happened here. And it's not just in the case of, let's say, an assault. It's not just a person who was assaulted. It's the other people who witnessed it. It's the people, it's the neighbors who now are afraid to leave their door unlocked. Um, it's the family of the victim. It's the younger kids who now feel unsafe on the street. It's you, there's a much there's concentric circles of harm when something happens. So restorative justice and restorative processes in the school will address address all of those levels. Who's been harmed? What you know? What impact did this have? And help the person who may, who caused the harm to understand the impact of it. Not saying that there might not be consequences for their action, but they can see this is going to. The intent is that this will help them. Next time they go to make a decision like that, stop and think, wait, who am I hurting? This isn't just about this person I'm angry with. It's also going to hurt their child or it's going to hurt their family or it's going to hurt um, my opportunities. So then we look at the needs of the people who are harmed rather than focusing on punishing the person who caused the harm. How do we fix this? How do we bring peace back to our community or our environment? Or how, in the case of a fight at school, for example, when two students get um, suspended for fighting, whether they get five days, 10 days, or two days out of school, they're coming back and they have to coexist in this environment. So and what, what are our plans to make that a safer experience? Not even just for the two that fought, but for the other students around who witnessed that and now feel that that's a part of their climate and their culture. Exactly. And even from a teacher's perspective, even if they manage to cohabitate and not fight again, the distraction to the other students, the tension that's in that classroom, the texting and chatting about, did you see when so-and-so or, right. you know, oh, I saw him give him the side eye or whatever it might be. I mean, even that is detrimental to a learning environment. The distraction, the teachers left to manage that, that the emotions, the residual emotions from that. If someone has taken the hour of time to help them restore, have a conversation, make a plan, even if in my old program, for example, I would have students coming back and I'd say, okay, they might've been in a fight with someone outside of our program. What are your plans when you see them in the hall? Because you're going to see them in the hall. And, you know, they would say, I'm going to, you know, I'm still angry or whatever. I'd say, well, here's a pass that you have that I'm going to let all your teachers know that when you see that person and you feel stressed, you can come straight to my classroom and we'll talk about it. Just giving them a tool to avoid repeating the behavior Right. And then once we've decided what the needs of the victim, what the needs of the person who caused the harm will meet, whose obligation is it to to do these repairs? You know, part of it obviously is the person who caused the harm, but it's also part of the community, leaders in the community, leaders of the school to say, I'm going to, you know, we're going to facilitate this. We're going to make sure these things happen. We're going to talk about it. We're going to, and, and a lot of times people are uncomfortable with this, even when there's conflict or, um, tension between staff members, this methodology of communicating is, is highly effective in helping staff with their um, philosophical conflicts. Or sometimes something happened in a classroom, you know, one teacher responds behavior differently than another. By having a school agree and be trained in restorative practices, 
students learn that if I do, if I make this decision in this classroom, the response I'm going to get from the adult in the classroom will be the same as if I did this in the classroom next door or in the hallway or in the cafeteria. And that alone cuts down on misbehavior because students know what to expect. And that's really, that cuts down on stress for everyone. Teachers know how to respond. Students know what to expect and understand that they will be held accountable for the decisions they make. And I like that you mentioned this really holistic approach to how everyone has to be within an organization like a school. Everyone has to be trained and educated on this type of practice. It cannot, it cannot stand secularly. It cannot be, we have just this one person over here that does the restorative work, but we haven't trained the other, the rest of the faculty and staff or explained the restorative work to the community, the parents or the students. We just have a person over here that does it. And when we have a conflict, we'll send the kids there. I think that creates so much more conflict because it, it's just, it's so misaligned. There's there's a, like a lack of synergy there. When people say things like, well, why didn't he get this kind of punishment or whatever? And people feel like justice hasn't been served because they can't see outside of that one definition of justice. And that's when it really becomes undermined. It's not implemented with fidelity to the intention of really working as, you know, as a, a social ideology for an entire community of people. And yeah, I know we've talked about that before and how when you even, you know, we want as educators to do our best in terms of um, classroom management, behavioral management, disciplinary action or whatever. But that whole concept can fall apart if a student goes to the cafeteria and interacts in a different kind of way with a staff member who doesn't understand those types of practices or um, encounters someone, you know, even within the community or, um, you know, outside of school. And that's not also represented in their interaction there. It undermines what one organization is trying to do. It has to be it has to be a holistic approach. Everyone kind of has to be on board. Otherwise it can, I think can fall apart really quickly. Absolutely. And, and um, I think that's part of what makes it so hard is to get everyone on board with this idea that, that if we use this universally and everyone respects this style of practice, this restoration of uh, a person's position inside of our whole community, not just that room or that classroom or that cafeteria or that friendship or whatever, but they understand their restoration within their positioning in their community, then there's then true progress is made. Absolutely. And, I, and you will encounter, I've encountered in my journey throughout just the state of Maine in the last year, a lot of schools that will tell me they're a, a restorative school. Um, Maine requires in statute that schools' codes of conduct be, use restorative language. But beyond that, that is, seems to be as far as it has gone. Um, or there might be, like you said, one person in the building that's a restorative practices provider. Um, that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, it really has to be a whole community effort because the consistency is what is really foundational. Um, 
So our in, thing I tell schools, it really takes three to five years of practicing to really be what would be considered a restorative school. Um, the first year is really building trust amongst the staff that they mm. understand each other, that they're all willing, that they're willing to trust each other to provide that consistency and to work together. And oftentimes I've encountered schools that the staff need some restorative work that sure. over the last few years with behavior, with um, the challenges that the pandemic presented, with the cultural challenges and philosophical differences that we are all aware of in, um, you know, even philosophy of education or what should be, what's allowed to be spoken of in school, what shouldn't be. Right. Um, there's a, there's often a division or even a clickiness between school staffs where they're, they're not working together. They don't mm -hmm. even trust each other. So if we can reach the end of the first year with that trust being in state just amongst the adults in the school, that is a great start. But our program also provides for meeting with parents, you know, in um, out at the school in an evening presentation or maybe one or two different um, venues to really share the philosophy because this, you know, may or may not affect your child. And the um, impact of using restorative process looks very different, whether you're if your child's a person who caused a harm as opposed to the person who may have been on the receiving end of that harm. And that's often the place where we run into the challenge of parents feeling like it's not enough because their child was hurt. And, that, and it makes perfect sense. Sure. But if they understand the intention of bringing those children back to at least um, being able to be in the same space comfortably, um, whether it's a bullying incident, a fight, um, any of the things that happen amongst young people. Um, sure. Also involving the school board or the school committee, making sure that they understand um, what we're, what the intention of this is so that everyone understands. Another piece we're working on at the Maine School Safety Center is also building something called juvenile community review boards for when behavior crosses over from school into the criminal justice system, whether it's a drug charge, um, an assault, something along those lines, a weapon, um, so that this restorative process also functions with school resource officers or with the police that interact with youth so that um, we're working together, ideally to divert the youth from the criminal justice system if possible, but also holding them accountable and making sure that when they do come back to school that they understand their expectations, that there's a group of people that are supporting that student, also making sure that they're holding up their agreement, but also helping them come back to school so that they can graduate and become a productive member of society. And I, I like the idea that you, that you keep linking restorative justice to this concept of like exclusionary practices, because I think in terms like of education, we can understand the detriment of, you know, exclusionary practices in school. And um, we get that the goal, at least in terms of special education, has always been, or not always, but is now, yeah. <laughs> luckily, um, to lean towards inclusion whenever possible. And we know that that's best practice in, in terms of students with learning disabilities, with physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities. And so why wouldn't that also extend to students that have behavioral challenges, right? Like. Right. We know, ex we know exclusion 
is detrimental. We know that it can harm the learning process and, and it's not always within the best interest. Frequently, it's not within the best interest of, of children. And so, and we know anecdotally as educators, when you have a kid who skipped your class five days in a row, and then you find out, oh, they got suspended for three days for skipping for five days. Oh, great. So now that's eight classroom days <laughs> that they're not here. Exactly. We're even further behind. And there's a rock solid chance that if they missed for five days, they don't have the foundation to do the work that you're going to ask me to send home with them because they've missed that entire instructional period. So now they're just going home to wing it and hopefully have developed enough executive functioning maybe in the last 24 hours to be able to do that independently. That's incredibly unlikely. That's setting them up for failure. And um, it checks a box. We've still provided them with education and with opportunities to learn. Oh, it checks a box yeah. for us, but it doesn't really check a box for them. It's not actually restorative for them in any way. Yeah. And it's not for us because they come back to school and we're like, oh, I'm going to sit with you after school and reteach you the last eight days of class. Great. That'll be fun for me. And so that's, you know, that's frustrating for, for educators too. And there's an animosity and a resentment that I think often builds there. Absolutely. Well, I think an important thing that um, we need to focus on is behavior in a youth, someone under 18, and, and I would argue in adults as well, but behavior is always pointing us towards something that is missing in that student's life. Skipping yeah. school, maybe one day that's for fun. You're going to go out and do something, but missing school for five days, something is going on. There's a, right. there's a deficit somewhere in that student's life it right. may be that their family doesn't value education. It may be that they're home watching a younger sibling. Right. It might be that, I mean, I've had experiences with students where their water was shut off and the student is too embarrassed to come to school because they haven't been able to shower. Right. Um, it's And really foundational to restorative practices is, no, is relationship, knowing your students. 85% mm -hmm. of restorative practices in school is preventive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not responsive. It's getting to know your students, knowing what's going on in their lives, knowing when behavior switches from their typical behavior to something very different. And then having the trust that you've been, that you've been building throughout the year to say to that student, Hey, I know that you're someone who really cares about your fashion and how you look. And I've noticed that you've worn the same thing four days in a row. What's going on kiddo. And they're right. comfortable enough with you and trust you enough to tell you because behavior points us to resources that are missing in that student's life to support them. Um, so if you put that energy into wondering why they're missing school or even with substance use, for example, mm -hmm. students that I've experienced in Rochester in the alternative school would often use substances to get through the day because their anxiety was so high that being in school or just getting through the day, knowing what might be going on outside of school was just too much to cope with. Right. So they would numb their feelings to get through the day. And when I realized that and realized that what I need to say to them, is, I know it's really hard for you to get here. And I know there's a lot going on, but thank you for coming. What can I do to help you? was mm -hmm. a lot better approach than, you know, your high, go to the office. Yeah. Um, or you've been missing a few days, go to the office or exactly. um, you, don't, you don't seem engaged, go to the office or whatever, which 
doesn't feel and and it's clear to me at least that the dichotomy between restorative versus retributive being that restorative is is very proactive which does require relationship building and getting to know a student as a whole person rather than just a, a brain in your room that you're trying to download information into versus retributive justice which seems very reactive and i think when i was when that incident occurred in my community and i was you know looking through what people were saying in response to it all i could think really was what people are so quick to jump to this idea that we should throw the book at them and then make an example out of this kid and then that will that will change everything and i thought really will it because has it we've been doing no. retributive justice for a long time we throw the book at people frequently and has that really improved our data in terms of do we see better behavior do we see significantly reduced crime rates i mean it would feel in a country that's been using retributive justice for this long, that if it was working, shouldn't it feel like things are better? Exactly. The data does not support retributive justice as a deterrent to recidivism or recommitting a crime. Even if you look at the restorative piece of reentry, which is used in schools and in the um, criminal justice system, helping people to re-enter after incarceration or exclusion from school. A, a re-entry re meeting at a school for a student who may have been suspended for 10 days or maybe returning from um, juvenile justice commitment or potentially mental health treatment. Um, a lot, we're seeing a lot more of that, students who have been hospitalized for mental health struggles. Um, a re-entry meeting at that level consists of making sure that the teachers that are all that will be the students teachers are part of this meeting that they let the student know you know what is what expectations for making up miss work what can be let go when they're available for extra help um, we would always include a guidance counselor or a social worker maybe both to let the student know um, you know when they're available what they can offer let the families understand um, the expectation and also make sure that there's a point one point person at the school who will take that role of checking in with the student, being the point of contact for family or outside um, um, service providers if the student's getting mental health support or um, maybe has a juvenile probation officer working with them, so that everyone is on the same page. That's sort of the end part of a restorative process is making sure that we've made this decision, this is what it's going to look like going forward. And yes, we will be holding you accountable because sometimes the process doesn't work. And by doing it this way, this allows us, there is always the default of going with a more traditional punitive system if the student isn't actually willing to take accountability for their actions. But making sure that people, but when, but when you're welcome back into the community, you are truly welcomed. And we're here to help you, not to keep an eye on you and make sure you're doing the things because you're a bad person, but because we want you here and we're gonna give you the supports you didn't have before to become part of the collective. Exactly. And, and you're welcomed wholeheartedly, not with a caveat um, of this person is reentering, but just remember this is something they did or whatever that hangs over their head forever because that feels incredibly hopeless. And from my experience working with children, hopelessness is is hugely detrimental to any it's level. It's toxic. It's toxic. It, 
sure. it really is. And um, I also noticed, and I, I wanted to mention this to you, on in terms of the legislative drafts um, regarding education in Maine right now, I saw so many about school safety that are using that are still considering safety from that paradigm of being reactive rather than proactive and very few that were interested in this more proactive approach um, to creating a safe space, not after an event or in response to an event, but before an event may occur in the future. And, uh, and I was worried about, I'm worried about that because it feels like so counterintuitive to this idea that we could help children garner skills that will allow them to move through the rest of their educational experience with less conflict, less behavioral incidences. We rather just keep implementing safety plans and policies and protocols that react to. And as we've seen, actually don't work. Um, don't work and are you know reactive to a, a safety threat rather than very fear-based very fear-based right it, and and there's a lot of, there's a lot of them i don't know if you saw um legislative draft 52 in maine which is an act to allow certain school employees to carry firearms on school property hmm, that yeah absolutely um so our i work for the maine school safety center and we actually are have been involved with opposition to all of those bills, um, yeah. which is was, it's fascinating because our director was a former state trooper for 30 years. And um, across the board in our department, we are strongly opposed to you know, firearms being held by teachers, um, firearms being allowed on school property outside of a school resource officer or a um, uniformed police officer. Right. Um, so the premise of the Maine School Safety Center is 100% prevention and restorative practices at its at its foundation is really about building a safer school culture, right. um, building relationship, speaking up when you see something going wrong, re, um, responding with repair when things do happen. But additionally, we also have another program called behavioral threat assessment management that's offered for free throughout the state where it helps administrators and teachers and school teams recognize when a student makes a threat whether it's very um, very um step-by-step -step determination if a student says i'm so angry i'm going to blow the school up do we call 911 or do we help the student get uh, access to services or is it just something they said to be obnoxious and we need to help them understand the impact of saying those kind of things on people? Um, and I know that over 2000 school staff in Maine have been in training this um, protocol already. And it has, it's remarkable how quickly it helps a school staff determine, is this a safety threat or is this just a student asking for additional services, extra help um, response and how to respond to that and what the um, the best type of service is depending on the threat. It also responds to um, students' threats of suicidal ideology as well. Um, but we are moving away as quickly as possible from anything that has to do with bringing weapons onto school property. But this is a nationwide problem. Um, right. We have the philosophy of 
You're the only thing to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. We've seen how that's unfolded. We've seen what's happened in some of the most horrific school shootings where there was a good guy with a gun on the property. It just doesn't prevent those situations. What prevents that is having an inclusive community where people look out for each other and hold people accountable for the things they do and help them repair the damage. And I think if people really truly understood or could suspend their um, cynicism and consider that perspective and allow that change to happen, that we would see huge shifts in behavioral data. Absolutely. But it is a systems change as going all the way back to what we started with. Yeah. We're, you, in, as we're building this uh, restorative philosophy, we're also having to dismantle our former beliefs with real evidence and all of the data supports that this change is necessary for the safety of our children at the end of the day, not right. just their physical safety, but also their emotional well-being. The numbers that we're seeing nationwide with students, depression, anxiety, other mental health struggles, suicide attempts, they're staggering. And feeling safe at school, feeling part of something bigger than yourself, belongingness goes a long way towards preventing those type of tragedies as well. It does. And it's important for everyone at every developmental stage and age, but belonging in a sense of um, agency and um, acceptance for, for teens is so critical. It's so critical. And we know that because the minute they feel that they've lost it, they, you could, it's all over their faces. It's so obvious. They walk in the room, they're a completely different person. And so rebuilding that is, is I think something that we really need to think about, not just in terms of how important is it for that child, though it is incredibly important, how important is it for us as a community, for our safety, for the safety of other children, and um, for the, the climate and the culture that we're trying to build here? And um, I was I was disappointed to see. I looked at like six different legislative drafts um, in front of the or that um, are kind of up for either they've been accepted or they're still being worked on by a committee or whatever in Maine, and of those six that all were filed as school safety um, legislative drafts, there none of them mentioned this critical component of preventative work and restorative practices to smaller behaviors that eventually pile up and become major safety incidences. That's true. Although there are, if you do look, there are several restorative practices or restorative justice bills in there as well. They don't fall under that school safety umbrella, but they are there, thank goodness. Um, but I think even if you look from an educational foundation of, you know, are we teaching kids the things we want them to learn in school academically? If a student is dysregulated or is feeling like they don't belong or mm -hmm. is feeling threatened or unwelcome, they're not learning anything anyway. They're right. not learning. They're not learning algebra. They're not learning how to write a solid paragraph. That's no. all they're thinking about. 
their body is on high alert, their anxiety is sky high. And yeah, no one learns when they don't feel safe, when exactly. they don't feel respected. So, so we can't make these make our environments safe emotionally for our students. We're failing from our educational perspective as well. They're not learning. They're I agree. just surviving. And that should be at the I think at the forefront of people's minds as they consider making this transition to a different style of approach when it comes to these types of conflicts and behavioral incidences in school. Um, so I want to talk about restorative justice real quickly as an adaptive challenge, which I think we've definitely hit on here a lot of times how much of a mindset shift, a paradigm shift, uh, an ideological shift has to occur uh, for us to not just accept restorative justice as a practice that would be beneficial, but to implement it in a way that's done with fidelity so that we actually reap the benefits of using that in schools. And uh, for adaptive challenges in education, I like to use uh, Bowman and Deal's framework of understanding organizational structures to handle adaptive challenges. And um, they posit that there are four frames from which you can view adaptive challenges in within an organization. There's first the structural frame, and the metaphor for that is the factory. It's essentially how an organization does what they do and what they do. So it's all the policies, the protocols, the tools, the resources that exist within an organization to produce some kind of product or service. And then you have the human resources frame and the metaphor for that is the family. So it's this idea that every organization has an interpersonal dynamic between the constituents of that organization. And then there's the political frame, the metaphor for which is the jungle. And what they mean by that is that there's a hierarchical structure. There's like always going to be the the leader at the top who has the most power and influence and like the law of the jungle and then you know it's dispersed from there down um which is a frame that i have a really hard time with as a person who likes to consider overthrowing hierarchies frequently yeah, same, um, same. <laughs> and then there is um the symbolic frame and the metaphor for that is the temple. And essentially it's, the, it's the big, why, why are we doing this? What is our mission? What's our vision? What are, what's a, the purpose of all of this? Right. And um, I'm interested to hear what you think about this particular adaptive challenge in terms of looking at an organization through those four frames. Um, well, certainly, unfortunately, what comes up now in our current culture is the political, um, which I would say is probably the, the biggest detriment to what we're doing is this fear-based notion that if we don't punish people or exclude people, they won't learn or the change won't happen. So that, um, that is, I would say, is our biggest stumbling block with implementation. Um, again, the data supports exactly the opposite, that in fact, people learn more become more productive members of society, become safer human beings, both um, in their relationships and in physical, from a physical perspective, as far as violence goes. But do you mean, how should we, like, as far as implementing in a school environment, is that what you'd like me to speak to or? Well, yeah, like where do you see, 
if since this is an adaptive challenge, which of those frames do you see this becoming the mo or is this the most embedded in in terms of where do, where do we need to do the most work? I would probably say the um, structure as far as getting people all on the same page with regards to um, like there's something called the five questions of restorative justice which is um, questions to ask the person who caused the harm and then questions to ask the person who um, was harmed in a situation and how do we um, respond to that? And what the first question you ask is what happened, which sounds big deal. So what, so what happened? But if you if you're someone who made a mistake, if you think about yourself in fifth grade and maybe you, you know, made a mistake in class and, or you were not nice to somebody and there was a conflict that arose from it. If someone said to you, why did you do that? As opposed to, Hey, tell me what happened. Mm -hmm. Just that paradigm shift of everyone in the school using that language, it instantly you're able to lead to a productive conversation of that. It does not presume judgment right from the get go. Yeah. It's immediately but, less adversarial to say, just describe to me what happened exactly. rather than, why right. um and often what ha you that's as far as you need to go you can say what happened the student shares something what happened before that what happened before that and it doesn't take long to get to i can remember and um conversation i had with a student it was actually a student that you had as well years ago at spalding where he was quite heated was very reactive was getting into conflicts with other students and as we use the what happened, tell me what happened before that. Well, what happened at home? We got to what happened at home. And he's like, well, you don't even want to know what happened last night. I said, I do. Can you can you tell me what happened? Reminding him that, you know, I'm a mandated reporter. And so I would always give students that opportunity to say, I need you to understand that if you tell me something that is a danger to you or that you are a danger to someone else, I have to, by law, tell someone. So I want you to take a minute and think before you tell me. They always... Sure. They always tell you. So, um, so then, then we have to like do the thing we said. But ultimately it came to the student, well, my dad got mad at me last night and he held a gun to my head. And so you're going to need to understand I'm having a really bad day. He used a more colorful word than bad. But um, <laughs> it was astonishing how instead of responding to his behavior, like, why are you acting like that? Or why are you doing that to him? I said, what happened? And just that that um, leveled his, um, you know, leveled his response, allowed him to catch his breath, allowed him to think, and allowed me to guide him through that thought process. So at, from a structural perspective, if students understand that they're going, that teachers, the adults, the administrators, the custodian, the bus driver who doesn't like how you're acting in the back seat is going yeah. to use that same process that provides security, provides safety, provides, um, a sen an understanding of we're all in this together. These adults actually care about me. They do care what happens to me. They might not like how I'm acting and that's okay, but they, but they have my best interest in heart. So of those four windows that you described, I think the structure is probably the most important, <coughs> excuse me, and where the most energy needs to apply, be applied in the development of a restorative school culture so that, the, that all the adults, even the one, those who are not on board at first, that you know, not are um, you know a little opposed or think that this isn't going to be effective, 
as they see it being effective for the other adults and the structure changing organically in that school environment. Um, and then, and by virtue of that, also extending out into the community, that is where you'll see the real shift, where you'll start to see real collaboration between people. And, you know, it'll start to get to the point where you'll see there's um, three teachers out of 75 that are providing 80% of the office referrals. Those teachers will get on board because they'll realize that other teachers are not having the same struggles with the same kids. And right. they actually seem to like their job again, where I, you know, I'm very stressed out in this environment. So, hey, what are you doing? How come you're having a better day than me? And that ultimately changes the structure collectively um, towards using this, this philosophy. And I think that structural frame, you're absolutely right. It's so critical because restorative justice sounds like this big ethereal abstract concept and without the legitimate in the moment, like here's, here are the logistics of the language that we're going to use when we approach this type of situation without those kinds of um, concrete tools, it all just seems like so conceptual. It's, it's hard to really, um, to really give uh, control over to and so I think it is really important there. And and like with that student, perhaps if the question had been instead, why did you do this? He may have never gotten there because in his mind, when you asked what happened, he could see the connection between what happened last night and why I did what I did today or how that that really is one whole incident for him versus in school when we just see them at school it it feels almost like the behaviors happen in a vacuum but they don't really and for him what happened the night before was a part of that bigger picture of what has happened in totality for this whole incident absolutely i mean he came to school if we take you completely regulated as a one on a scale of one to ten and completely dysregulated potentially violent or potentially harmful to yourself as a 10, this particular student came to school at an eight. So right. it didn't take long for someone to do something that quote, you know, pissed him off or upset him. And he, um, you know, so if I just said, why did you do that? Well, did you hear what he said to me? Blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah. And that would have been where it ended where right. you know, I was able to say because of relationship, because of using this question, what happened i'll say because i noticed you seem kind of stressed when i saw you get off the bus this morning you know yeah. did something happen on the bus what happened before that um and just to be able to really teach the student to understand their own behavior to be responsible for their response um it's huge and but that that won't work in a school environment if you have you know just the administrators and the dean of students trained in restorative practices this has to be this is how we treat each other. This is how we talk to people. And I can tell you that from personal experience, using re uh, th those five questions for the person who's caused the harm, and then there's four questions for the person who was harmed, which includes what were you thinking about this when it happened? How mm -hmm. do you think about it now, now that it's over and you see the consequences of what happened? Um, sure. That has really made my personal relationship so much better sure. um, with my partner, with my own children. Um, with my coworkers to, you know, pause, step back, mm -hmm. think about what was I thinking when I said that rude thing to somebody? And then like having to get really real with myself about, 
that really was way over the top for what just happened. Why? What's happening inside of me that mm-hmm. led me to this place? And that's so there's not only structure in your community, your school, but structure in your thoughts about how you respond to your own behavior or the your behavior of your child or your partner. Um, and just how much it's very civilized. It's a very civilized way to live. I think, yeah, and I think that's beautiful. And that's such a big part of, of self-awareness and, um, and, you know, avoiding future behaviors that did not serve a person the first time. Um, but I, I do think this adaptive challenge falls deeply uh, in terms of its embeddedment, which may not be a word, um, of how embedded it is in every frame. I think that in terms of um, the human resources frame, the family dynamic, which you just mentioned, um, this is a part of a communication process, which is critical to the interpersonal relationships within a a family or an organization of people that are working together. Um, And I also think it's, it's hugely within the political frame in that I think it does change that hierarchical, who has power, who has influence, that dynamic that feels adversarial to students frequently. I think that it changes that when you hand them voice to say, well, here's what happened. Here's how I was feeling. Um, That takes, that gives them a level of um, agency and autonomy back in the situation rather than you did this one thing and now it's my thing to handle. And I'm going to tell you how it goes from here. You've lost control at this point. It's, it's about what I say happens. Exactly. We say, um, where we, rather than doing something to a student uh, in response to something, something that was undesirable, we're finding a solution with the student and that. Exactly. It's, and that, that pedagogical partnership is that changes the entire framework of understanding the politics in, in the dynamics of an organization. And then in terms of the symbolic frame, when we think about why are we here, why are we doing all of this? Hopefully a part of that vision is the idea that we are creating people who will then become adults and go out into the world and participate in our community as adults, um, with these skills of being able to work through conflict, problem solve, and manage their own behavior and emotions in a way that doesn't escalate into continued undesirable behaviors, you know, post graduation. Absolutely, and so I think it has to be a it has to be a part of that too. It has to be internalized into that vision, but in a in a genuine way. Also, just in a, a literal sense of symbol of symbology. Is that the word? Um, there is a restorative <laughs> response is done in a circle, which with every person participating, sitting in that circle and having equal power and equal say in what ends up happening. So it's the circle is a symbol of eliminating that hierarchical structure, which has, we know hasn't worked in response to undesired behavior. Um, you know, sure. There's a long history of this coming from, um, first person community, first nation communities from New Zealand. You mentioned Maori communities, Native American communities um, for centuries. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and it does work. And and by responding as a community, 
to something that happened with a member of your community, you're protecting that belongingness. Um, and you're also making it safe to come back and to own responsibility for what happened to feel safe creating the repair without being punished for owning owning your um, the decision you made. Um, we're not going to keep talking about this. You've done the repair. We're going to move on. And you are still important to us. You're still part of our community. And that's, I think, the most beautiful part of it. I agree. And I will say, so there's a, a fifth theoretical framework proposed by my doctoral cohort in an article that we've uh, written recently. And we've been sort of um, experimenting with this concept and, and um, writing about it and thinking about it as uh, we call it the eudaimonia frame, but it's a frame for understanding the synergy between all of these different compartments within an, an organization. Uh, and I think it, the uh, symbol for that is the tuning fork. So it's this idea that we all tune to the same the same key, if you will, so that we're all working in harmony towards this goal. And um, I think when you mentioned how important it is that we get everyone on board with this paradigm shift, and we know there'll be the early adopters and there'll be the late adopters, it's not all going to happen simultaneously, although that would be lovely. Just Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> but but um, in doing that, really continuing to work towards that goal is so critical because there does have to be that synergy within every aspect of an organization, all of the policies and protocols and resources and tools that exist within the structural frame, uh, willingness to relinquish power within the political frame, willingness to uh, improve the family dynamic, willingness to um, work towards with fidelity towards this vision um, for a student that we're trying to provide a service to help the student grow. And then also not even just within the school, but within the entire community, a willingness to accept this paradigm shift to allow for restorative practices to be implemented effectively. That is, that's so important. And that's like the, the seed of success so that students don't have this cognitive dissonance between, well, we handled this situation uh, this way at school, but um, I left and I went over here or I went, you know, to a game and a, an incident occurred and it was handled completely differently. And that undermines all the work that I just did. So it has to be, there has to be, everyone has to be tuned to that same key, if you will. Um, in order for, I think, students to really allow that work to continue to help them grow and, and make effective change. Absolutely. And I think there's some synergy between um, youth agency and youth voice that could also be integrated into this shift. I think it's actually super important that it is. Um, and ideally, if I ruled the world, um, I would want to include the voice of the students who are most often on the receiving end of exclusionary discipline, because exactly. I think they have a lot to share with us about why it hasn't worked and what would have actually changed their behavior. If you mm -hmm. look at it um, from that perspective. And that's 
that's a pillar of uh, the program that I've started at the school that I'm working at now, the Student Summit Leadership Program. A pillar of that program is that it is fully inclusionary. And by that, I mean, there is no, um, you had a behavioral um, challenge this week, so you can't come or you, um, you're failing this class so you can't come, or you can't be here after school because you have to take care of students, or, you know, younger siblings or whatever, or you have to work a, a job to help pay for your household or whatever. It has to be fully inclusionary. It's really important to me because one of my major gripes with this idea of um, promoting student voice and leadership is I felt like that's always done for students that show school is already working really well for them and they're already exemplary amongst their peers. And so why would we ask students for whom things are going pretty well, hey, what should we do different? <laughs> like they, they're, they're pretty on board. <laughs> so exactly. what I know is these one these students over here who are struggling who are coming to school every day with trepidation and they don't want to be here but they also kind of want to be here because it's maybe better than home or it feels safer or more stable whatever's going on those students their voice in terms of us considering educational reformation and how do we how do we create system change in education to keep up with modern students and, and work effectively as an organization? It has to it has to be that level of inclusionary rather than when we just say, all right, give me the president of the student council and they'll give me feedback on how school is going. That's just confirmation bias. You're just telling me what I'm doing already worked for you. Great. Awesome. That doesn't create change. And so I, I think that really is a critical part too. And often, as we've seen when we were um, working with the alternative program, those students who are struggling are just so marginalized and Absolutely. disenfranchised and silenced. And it's, it's really disheartening. And it's also detrimental to the organization as a whole because we never see true progress where that happens. It's true. And the truth of the matter is that students who have been on the outside, when you invite them into the inner circle and listen to their voice, they blossom right before your eyes. I oh, have yeah. yet to be disappointed by the response of a student who I've offered an opportunity for growth. They right. have, they've always risen to the occasion. And I think it's worth, it's worth the taking the chance. I, I could not agree more in that. Um, peer influence is so critical because that is where they're, that's, you know, at least at the high school level, probably at the middle school level, maybe even a little bit at the elementary level, their peers' behaviors that they're modeling are so impactful in terms of, you know, decision-making and processing for themselves. And so getting that group of, of students on board just changes the whole dynamic and that really fosters that collective efficacy that's a part of that synergy of of making this kind of adaptive challenge successful is that everyone has bought in everyone sees um not only that this could be effective and this could work but that we can do it everyone can do it and we could do it all together so 
I think that's really, I think that's really beautiful. And I would like to say, I'm so thankful for having you on the show today and for doing this episode with me. I think your work is so important and, um, and I hope people are willing to listen and understand how vehemently positive that change could be within, within a school. Well, thank you for having me. And maybe we can talk again a year from now and see where, where we're at. Um, see this how our what, launch year went. I'm excited how, to see how it unfolds. I would, I would love to, I would love to, I think that would be great. Great. Well, thank you. And good luck with your, the end of your doctoral studies as well. Thank you so much.